Theological education should be accessible. In the past, men have had to leave their local churches to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, you can now complete a seminary education while staying in your own church and being mentored by your own pastor. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. Welcome to the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning, and that is I'm actually going to give to the listeners of this podcast a Sunday school lesson that I had taught in a little church work that we had going on last year between Grand Rapids and Holland, Michigan, and I was teaching Sunday school American church history. The one thing that I thought about as I was listening to this Sunday school lesson again is that when you're teaching Sunday school for the first time on something like American church history, you have to study so much for each week to become very familiar with your subjects that you don't have time to focus on how you did in the week before because you're already by Monday morning preparing for the next Sunday school lesson. So as I listened to this again, I was surprised how much information was in there because I even covered a little overview of the missionary Lottie Moon. So it is my prayer that you will find this Sunday school lesson useful for you. So here we are with a recorded lesson that was recorded live before a Sunday school audience. I haven't taught a lot of Baptist figures in a Sunday school class. I was so much more familiar with Presbyterian history. And I know of the men, the men that started the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary at the time in, I believe, Charleston, South Carolina. I know about Broadus's works that he wrote delivery and preparation of sermons, a commentary on Matthew, and he wrote the life of James P. Boyce, who was the original president of Southern Seminary. And I want to deal with the things that surrounded the Civil War, and so that's what got me interested. I came up with this subject on Sunday night, and I had Monday off, so for the first two hours on Monday morning, I began to put this together. Didn't even know who had written his biography, but uh, Broadus was an American Baptist pastor and professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, so I'll give you an overview, and then we'll get into the specifics. He was one of the most famous preachers of his day. Even Charles Spurgeon said that Broadus was the greatest of living preachers. The church historian Albert Henry Newman later said perhaps the greatest man the Baptists have produced. In 1861, at the outbreak of the Civil War, Confederate General Stonewall Jackson wrote to one of Broadus's friends in order to plead for his services, beg him to come, beg him to help. Well, tradition gets mixed up as they're talking about his biography, and they say that he was a chaplain in the Civil War. His only purpose in coming there was they wanted him to preach to the troops. And if you know anything about that Civil War history, revival came not only to the Confederate soldiers in the South, but to the soldiers in the North as well. It was a tremendous time of awakening, and Broadus had some of his best opportunities to preach in his life by preaching to the troops. So he was a first Southern Baptist New Testament professor and eventually served Robert E. Lee's army until the end of the war. 
Once the war ended, he returned to the classroom in Greenville, South Carolina. When classes began on November 1st, 1865, only seven students enrolled. In Broadus's homiletics preaching class, he only had one student. And I'll talk about that later because this is really amazing. If I stand here and I got three people, I could be tempted to say, well, it doesn't seem like the Lord's blessing this work. This man had so many offers to preach in so many places, including taking Francis Wayland's place at Brown University. And he was so dedicated once he came to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary to teach preaching. He had one student after the war, and that man was blind. And he had already created his homiletical notes, and he revised them for one student, a blind student in his class, and we'll get into that in a bit. So that book got republished in 1870, and Spurgeon said, I was delighted to see J.A. Broadus. He got to see him, and he said his book is invaluable. From Obi Todd's review of the book, John Broadus, the father of modern expositional preaching, Broadus was a tireless worker, and his contributions are still recognized in the modern era. His book, A Treatise on the Preparation and Delivery of Sermons, 1870, became for many decades the most popular text on homiletics in the world, and it is still used in some schools today. I know it was used at Trinity Ministerial Academy, that it was required reading there, and um, Joseph told me that he had read it recently, so it's still very much in use. Broadus was memorialized in a literary tradition from that book alone. Along with his colleague Basil Manley Jr., Broadus's name was combined to form the first word of Southern's publishing company, Broadman Publishing. Broadus Manley. During the last of the 19th century in America, no Baptist preacher enjoyed greater popular fame than John Albert Broadus. By his seminary colleagues, by denominational leaders, by competent critics of preaching, and by appreciative congregations, he was ranked as one of the leading preachers of his time. W.C. Wilkinson, a keen analytic student of preachers and preaching, gave this appraisal of Broadus and modern masters of pulpit discourse. I have named in my title a man with every natural endowment, every acquired accomplishment, except perhaps plenitude of physical power. He was sickly. He wasn't strong. To have become, had he been only a preacher, a preacher hardly seemed to any other in the world. His preaching work has been incidental rather than principal in his career. He presents a conspicuous example of a man who, notwithstanding that this must be said of him, he enjoys and justly enjoys the national reputation as a preacher. Now, the biographer of Broadus was A.T. Robertson, who is the Greek scholar who also later on taught at Southern Seminary. And he said, it had been my fortune to hear Henry Ward Beecher, Phillips Brooks, Alexander McLaren, Joseph Parker, Charles Spurgeon, Dwight Moody. At his best and in a congenial atmosphere, Broadus was the equal of any man I had ever heard. In a recent book on the Yale Lectures, The Royalty of the Pulpit, Edgar DeWitt Jones has listed Broadus as one of the Olympians. And speaking of the conspicuous position which he occupied and of the esteem and affection in which he was held by Baptists, no king on his throne had more loyal and willing subjects than did this professor preacher. 
From Southern Seminary's website, John Broadus, Southern's second president, was born on January 24, 1827 in Culpeper County, Virginia. After undergraduate and graduate work at the University of Virginia, he joined the university's faculty as an assistant professor of classics. There he displayed unusual facility in his post. He served simultaneously as pastor of the Charlottesville Baptist Church. Now that caught my eye because last night in the news, something else caught my ear, and that is that Charlottesville had been in the news a lot in the last year and a half and overrun with political correctness and another place in which people tried to tear down the uh, statue of Robert E. Lee. Broadus won the heart of Maria Harrison, a daughter of a renowned classics professor, Gessner Harrison. The Broadduses had three daughters together before Maria passed away, so they weren't even married a long time. She was only 26, and he later married Charlotte Sinclair. With her, they raised a happy family. So he was a genius boy who played upon the hills of Culpeper. He had the good fortune to be reared in the country, whereas he afterwards said everybody ought to be born. He seems to have been a shy child who did not enter into all boyish games. He liked marbles, but not ball. He was particularly fond of running, had the reputation of being the swiftest runner in the county. Two little colored boys, as was true of so many southern children, were his playmates, Henry and George. In these years, the boy was with his father much. His father was a an army major. He visited the neighbors, went to court or to muster, his father being major of the militia. At home, hospitality was free. Visitors would come from over the ridge with big wagons and bells on their horses. The lawyers and politicians felt at home at Major Broadus's house. So did the preachers who would sometimes make little John stand upon the table and read aloud from the religious herald. Major Broadus at this time was a member of the Mount Pony Baptist Church, Culpeper Courthouse. No meeting house was nearby. And Uncle Griffin Reed sometimes preached in the schoolhouse. So early he became a mimic of some of these preachers. J.A. Apperson says in his boyhood days he would go to hear Barnett Grimsley or Cumberland George preach a sermon. The next day he could repeat it so nearly and imitate their voices so closely that if he were out of sight you would think it was one of them talking. Dr. Lewis of Culpeper tells that one day he climbed a sycamore tree and aptly took a text about Zacchaeus. While he was still at school a protracted meeting and a protracted meeting in those days is what we often refer to, not us Reformed Baptists, but a lot of Baptists call a revival meeting. But in a protracted meeting, that just meant these meetings went on while they had evidence that the Holy Spirit was working. It conducted at Mount Pony Church by Reverend Charles A. Lewis of Kentucky and Barnard Grimsley Broadus was converted at this revival. While under conviction and feeling unable to take hold of the promises, a friend quoted to him, John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Repeating, in no wise cast out. Can't you take hold of that promise, John? Somehow the light dawned under this verse of Scripture. James Field of Gordonsville, Virginia writes, I knew him quite intimately from 1842 to 1847. We were youths of about the same age. He going to school to his uncle, Albert Sims, and I living in the store of Thomas Hill and son at Culpeper. Now that's interesting as well because he was tutored one-on-one because he had 
pretty much a, a genius about him that he needed to be tutored from the best. And one day he came home and he said to his dad, uh, Mr. Sims is done with me. Uh, he doesn't need me anymore. And his father couldn't pry out of him. What do you mean? So he went to his uncle and he said to him, there's nothing wrong with John. I've just run out of anything that I can anymore teach him. Uh, he poured anything that he thought was useful to him, and the boy had mastered it, and there just wasn't much more he could do for him. In a meeting a few months after John's conversion, the preacher urged all Christians at the close of the service to move about and talk to the unconverted. John looked anxiously around to see if there was anybody present he could talk to about his soul's salvation. He had never done anything of this kind before. Finally, he saw a man not very bright named Sandy. He thought he might venture to speak to him at any rate, and Sandy was converted. John soon went away to teach school. Now, Sandy probably was somebody's servant, slave. Whenever he came back, Sandy would run across the street to meet him and say, Howdy, John. Thank you, John. Howdy, John. Thank you, John. Dr. Broadus often told of this first effort of his, his soul winning and would add, If I ever reach the heavenly home and walk the golden streets, I know the first person to meet me will be Sandy coming and saying again, Howdy, John. Thank you, John. He was so thankful to be used that he was used in his conversion. Not knowing what to do as a young adult, he became a teacher beginning his in June of 1844, and he kept a diary of his life for his sister's benefit. On Tuesday, July 23rd, he records at length the most interesting experience about a boy who created much disturbance while he was out of the room a few minutes. The boy took correction badly. There I sat in my chair with my feet upon the stove. Within six feet of me sat a boy whom I knew to be as stubborn as an ox. So you got the student who just isn't going to yield. He called him stubborn as an ox who had just failed to comply with a positive command repeated five or six times and all around were the scholars looking to see what I was going to do as a young teacher, a new teacher. What could I do? I didn't want to whip him. Besides, I could not conquer him by that. So I just went to him and taken him by the arm, led him to my chair and seated him in it, telling him to sit still. You may see I did not know what to do. He got up and I set him down again and I held him there. He struggled. I hailed him. He cursed me and I talked to him mildly. He threatened to tell his mother and I laughed at him. He threatened to blow me up, send me away, you know. And I told him, well, blow on. After about 15 minutes worry of being held, he sat still and I let him go. In 1846, he started to entertain a desire to preach. He was studying at the University of Virginia to be a doctor. The study of bones did not satisfy him. He was working his way toward the light and sought the help of his intimate friends. Still, he pushed a question of preaching away from him. He was going to be a doctor, and he had the chance of going to the University of Virginia. That was the alluring prospect now before him, but God laid his hand upon him. For three years, a professed Christian, he had often thought about the question of becoming a pastor, but considered himself to have finally decided that it was not his duty. On Sunday, Dr. Poindexter preached upon glory and in the cross. The young man had often heard with enthusiasm and delight such truly eloquent preachers as Barnett Grimsley, Cumberland George, and Henry Dodge, but he thought that Sunday at Upperville that he had never before imagined what preaching might be. He never before conceived the half of the grandeur and glory to gather sublime around the cross of Christ. The next morning, Dr. Poindexter was requested to preach and preached on the parable of the talents. 
And he spoke of consecrating one's mental gifts and possible attainments to the work of the ministry. He seemed to clear up all difficulties pertaining to the subject. He swept away all the disguise of self-delusion, all the excuses of fancied humility. He held up the thought that the greatest sacrifices and toils possible to a pastor's lifetime would be a hundredfold repaid if he should be the instrument of saving one soul. Doubtless the sermon had many more important results which have not fallen in the way of being recorded, but when intermission came, the young man who is before mentioned sought out his pastor and with a choking voice said, Brother Grimsley, the question is decided. I must try to be a preacher. For the decision of that hour, he is directly indebted under God to A.M. Poindexter, and amid a thousand imperfections and shortcomings, that work of the ministry has been the joy of his life. But on June 22, 1847, a great shadow came over his life. He was sent for quickly, and on entering his mother's room, only heard her say, My son. As she passed away, she died of a sudden and severe attack of a heart disease. She had given John the true ideal of womanhood and taught him from his earliest years that beautiful reverence for women, that beautiful reverence for women, which was so thoroughly a part of his character. On June 4th, 1849, and you should find this interesting, one of his professors was William McGuffey, who most of you know from the McGuffey readers, was also preaching from time to time. And one night he could not fill his own pulpit and he gave Broadus the opportunity to preach his first sermon. It was at the Mount Eagle Presbyterian Church in Albemarle County. The text was from Psalm 62.8, God is a refuge for us. There was this young lady, L.L. Hamilton of Charlottesville, then a child near Keswick, and she wrote about the effect that first sermon of John Broadus had upon her. William McGuffey, professor of moral philosophy in the University of Virginia, had charge of the church. Being sick on this particular Sunday, he sent down one of his students to fill his place, and well did he fill it. The doctor, McGuffey, was dry and logical and preached more to the head than to the heart. On this day, which I well remember, there stood up in his place a slightly built, dark-haired youth, scarcely 20 years of age. He was actually 22, who spoke as I never heard man speak before of our gracious Savior. There was something in his manner very entreating, very touching, very convincing. After the sermon, all were eager to find out the name of the student who had filled so acceptably the learned professor's place. That day was the first time I ever saw or heard the name John Albert Broadus. I was about 11 years of age. I wish I could recall the text, but I well remember the impression made upon me by his charming simplicity. He had made comprehensible, even to the mind of a child, great Bible truths. In September 1849, he was asked to be a permanent supply for the Charlottesville Baptist Church. His brother Madison wanted him to do it. For you can preach, he says. His brother had previously felt grave doubts of his success. However, he wisely declined the committee's urgent request from the church. Their petition showed their estimate of the young preacher. They urged that here he could cultivate those superior talents which have been committed to you, John, as we prayerfully hope for great usefulness in the vineyard of our master. Well, he accepted a position to teach 
at home with General Cock and Fluvanna. There was a cloud before him during these months on account of his father's health, which was gradually but surely failing. He'd come to the university to educate his boy and succeeded, but he died on June 27, 1850, two days before John was to deliver his graduating address. As he stood by his father's bedside, he said, I shall not make my graduating speech, father. Yes, said his father, for I am dying. Well, his father's death caused widespread regret all over the state, for he was a man of mark and great personal worth and forth of character. This speech was afterwards published in the Jefferson Monument magazine, so he gave his graduating speech at the University of Virginia, and the subject was human society and its relation to natural theology. So he continued to teach, and in the interim met one of his former professor's daughters named Maria Harrison. November 5th, 1850, so 1850 was a big part of his life. He wrote to her, It is a pleasant thought to me, Maria, dearest, that before there would be occasion for me to write to you again, you will have become fully my own. It has been a most delightful correspondence I've had with you this long time as my fiancé. Back then they used the word affianced. Welcome, welcome, and precious have been those frequent messengers from my beloved one. My heart bounds at the very remembrance of the delight with which I have so often gazed upon the well-known characters in which you trace my name. That little missus of last session, that long letter from Harrisonburg, and all the precious ones since I left the university all together form a rich treasure, and so on. And the wedding took place at Dr. Harrison's house on November 13th of 1850. On the following day, the happy couple set out for Philadelphia to visit the bride's grandfather, Mr. Tucker. There's a note in a book called Virginia Baptist Ministers by Braxton Taylor. And he says, well, do I remember my first meeting with Broadus? We were both teaching in Fluvanna County, Virginia. He, a private school at General Cox Place, Bremo, and I just graduated from, graduated from Richmond College. So in the 19th century, Richmond College was a Baptist college. And now, as they say, if you go to such places, the only time you'll be exposed to religion is if uh, there's somebody representing Campus Crusade for Christ. So we met in 1850 at the James River Association. I then for the first time heard him preach his text being, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? And a very witching sermon it was, but no less a spell did he cast over me by his manner and conversation. So while he was staying in Fluvanna, he preached several times at the Brick Church, people gathering from far and near to hear him. And as a pastor, it was vacant. He was invited to it. So he immediately, it was seen that this young man was a gifted preacher. And he had numerous invita uh, invitations to fill the pulpit at first. But he wanted to continue his studies at uh, West Virginia. And so eventually he took the pastorate in Charlottesville. Uh, there weren't any Baptist seminaries yet in those days. So for him to um, study for the ministry, he would have to be pretty much Taught. His brother wrote to him on February 22nd, 1851. This morning I received a letter from one of the board of trustees of Georgetown College informing me that you had unanimously elected to fill the chair of ancient languages in that college. And he's excited about that and so on. And this was really a wrestling for John. He had so many imitate, um, invitations and 
Yet in the end, he found out that he was being asked to fill the pulpit at Charlottesville Baptist, and that would work out perfect for him because he could still be at the university and he could pastor. James Thomas writing in from Richmond in 1851, there appeared a young man who along with two other brethren gave in their names as delegates from Fork Union Church in Fluvanna County. Enough was known of the young man to lead the committee on church services to appoint him to preach. This he did and in a day or two returned to a school. His name was John Broadus. He was appointed to preach on Sunday night in the First Baptist Church. Before the hour had arrived, that spacious auditorium was crowded to overflowing. Expectation was on tiptoe and most intense. Every eye was turned toward the preacher. He was so youthful in appearance, so frail, so diminutive. An old brother sitting by whispered in my ear, he's going to fail. Soon with slow and graceful step, he approached a desk and announced the opening hymn in clear tones with no tremor of voice or manner. He read the several stanzas and took his seat. The old brother, brother whispered again, he will not fail. And fail he did not. He fully sustained his early fame. His sermon was equal to the demands of the great and trying occasion. No gush, no attempt at mannerism or display of learning. It was a pure gospel and simple, earnest, well-chosen diction and impressively delivered from that hour to the day of his death, Dr. Broadus always met occasions. He never allowed his reputation to outrun his ability or his merit. Well, when we at the overview of his life, I had mentioned that Stonewall Jackson begged him to come to preach to the troops, and Broadus, as well as Boyce, they really didn't want this war. They really did not want the South to succeed, but once it happened, and being Southerners, they took up the cause and wanted to know how they could help, and he wrote I am not a secessionist. The word angers me now, but I'm a Virginian. Virginia in the Union. If men were wise enough, unselfish enough, virtuous enough to appreciate and preserve a Union is my favorite idea. But if Virginia cannot belong to the Union without servile degradation from Northern aggression and domination, then I am for Virginia and nothing else at present. You see, no doubt, our convention has turned us over provisionally to Jeff Davis's provisional government. Well, I'm content with it. Virginia, I think, will overwhelmingly ratify. But Stonewall Jackson urged Dr. Broadus saying to Dr. Jones, he wrote to this Dr. Jones to plead with him, write to him by all means and beg him to come. Tell him that he never had a better opportunity of preaching the gospel than he would have right now in the southern camps. He promptly replied that he would be glad to come, that he had been seriously and prayerfully considering the question. When I met General Jackson a few days before the reception of Dr. Broadus's letter and told him that he would come, the great soldier said in his characteristic phrase, that is good, very good. I'm so glad of that. He was so glad that John Broadus was going to come and preach to the troops. And when Dr. Broadus comes, you must bring him to see me. I want him to preach at my headquarters, and I wish him wish to help him in his work all I can. Well, going by memory, I believe that was sent on the original letter, April 25th, 1863, by Stonewall Jackson on the left. And during this interim... 
Stonewall Jackson had actually been shot, some people say, by friendly fire, and he took three bullets to his body, and they put him on a, a stretcher, a gurney, whatever it was, to get him out of harm's way, and he fell off of that. And so before Stone, um, John Broaddus could even meet Stonewall Jackson, he had succumbed to pneumonia May 10th, 1863, and he had passed away. But while John Broaddus was there, he gave his service to Robert E. Lee to preach to the troops. So this was just 25 days before Jackson was shot in battle and died later of pneumonia. He never saw John Broaddus. July and August and half of September were spent in daily preaching to Lee's army. Besides the preaching, Dr. Broaddus was a war correspondent of the Charleston News and Courier. It was furious and exciting work, and Dr. Broaddus threw his whole soul into it until his throat gave way completely from so much of out-of-door speaking. He says, Monday, July 6, 1863, I did not go back to town on Saturday. They have pure coffee, captured, of course. And he begins to disagree with me. Otherwise, I get on well enough. My sleeping is on a little wooden frame, having under me an oilcloth and a blanket to soften the plank and another blanket for cover with my overcoat for a pillow. A good many soldiers in attendance both times yesterday. They were coming. The soldiers were coming to hear the gospel. There was just such a hunger for the gospel. In fact, John Broaddus had created a Bible track and distributed it and anything like that was welcome to the soldiers. So he said a good many soldiers were in attendance both times yesterday. The sermons were not particularly good or particularly bad. God grant that they may do some good. Oh, it is so hard to preach as one ought to do. I long for the opportunity, yet do not rise to meet it with whole-souled earnestness and living faith, and afterwards I feel sad and ashamed. There is an appointment for me to preach this in several successive afternoons at the Lutheran Church. Well, eventually the war ended, but while the war was going on, he had already started his professorship. He was begged for a year by John Boyce to come to the newly formed Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which was started in 1858-1859, and then the Civil War came, and the seminary was temporarily suspended. So they did return to their normal duties, but I want to talk about a story that happened under his ministry, and that was the conversion of Lottie Moon. And she's interesting because she is kind of the emblem of Southern Baptist missionary movement. In fact, I even saw on a website even this morning that every Christmas they take up a collection for missions in her name. It's called the Lottie Moon Christmas Mission Gathering. And this young lady was four foot three, and she was really funky. In fact, some people said before she got converted under John Broaddus's ministry, uh, she was somewhat of a flirt. Well, there was a person who ended up teaching at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary who was interested in her, and I wasn't clear if he had asked 
her to marry him and she turned it down or if they were just really close friends but this Crawford toy taught Old Testament studies while John Broadus taught New Testament studies and like Charles Hodge Crawford toy decided to go to Germany and further his education but unlike Charles Hodge he was overcome with skeptical teaching. He embraced Darwinism. And he came back and it was discovered that he was a skeptic, basically a heretic. And he had asked her again to marry him and her knowing that he was not giving any signs of being a believer, that he was embracing Darwinism, she turned him down. Now, she had always wanted to marry, and providentially, it didn't work out, but she gave her life to missions, and Crawford Toy ended up being a Unitarian. He was removed from the seminary. But Charlotte, called her Lottie Moon, Charlotte Diggs Moon, born in 1840 and died in 1912, was a Southern Baptist missionary to China with the Foreign Mission Board and spent nearly 40 years living and working in China as a teacher and evangelist. She laid a foundation for traditionally solid support for missions among Southern Baptists, especially throughout women's missionary, it's women's missionary union. You know, as a young girl, she was spirited and outspoken. She was indifferent before she was converted to her Christian upbringing and until her early teens. And she underwent a spiritual awakening after a series of revival meetings on the college campus. And the pastor was John Broadus. And the date is interesting to me because It was 1858, and I had taught on this before. This revival that came, as best as I can tell, was the spreading of the revival that was a result of the prayer meeting revival that started in Manhattan with Jeremiah in the prayer meetings in the upper room, and it had spread so much that the revival was going on in Virginia, Well, when I taught on that before, what was also as interesting is that men from Great Britain came and studied what was going on and gave the report in the United Kingdom. And there's a book on revival, which is probably one of the most interesting in my library called William Reed's um, Authentic Records of Revival, now in progress in the United Kingdom in 1859. So this young lady was converted in a revival that came in 1858, and it just shows how widespread that revival was. There is a book on the revival sermons of Charles Spurgeon in London in 1859. That would be exciting if something like that happened again Anyway, rumors characterized Moon's relationship with Crawford Howell Toy, a former teacher who had become a controversial figure among Southern Baptists in the late 19th century, as romantic. Moon first met Toy at the Albert Marley Female Institute, Lottie, who previously learned Latin, Greek, French, Italian, and Spanish, and would become the, one of the first women to earn a master's degree in languages, studied Hebrew and English grammar under Toy's tutelage, so this was her tutor. Crawford Toy, and he wrote of this young lady, she writes the best English I've ever been privileged to read. Now, some, as I said, they contended that Toy proposed to Moon before the Civil War. Her mention of a marriage proposal from Toy dates from 1881, so it was 
quite a time afterward. And as I said, in the interim, Toy supported the Confederacy and became a professor of Old Testament studies while Moon aided her mother on their Virginia estate, but Toy eventually became a Unitarian. However, following controversies concerning Darwinism and Toy's criticism of some of the Baptist Christological Old Testament interpretations, Toy submitted his resignation from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1879. So she, he had had plans on marrying her, and she wasn't about to marry a Unitarian. Well, back to 1858, at the beginning of Southern Seminary, Broadus was asked to become a member of the first faculty of the new Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Well, the history was interesting to me because there were four men who were the original founders of the seminary, and James Boyce and James Broadus, John Broadus, were born just a few days apart. So that was the original president president of the seminary, and his systematic theology is abstracts so of theology is in print. So he was one of the great men of 19th century Baptists, and Boyce and Broadus became inseparable. They were so close, and Boyce passed away first, and Broadus wrote his Biography. Well, there's a new one, and it's in my library. I've read Broadus's Life of Boyce, but there was a new one written by Thomas Nettles. Well, the first two years of the seminary showed real promise, but then came the Civil War, as I said, and the school was forced to close. Broadus preached in small churches and spent some time as a worker in Lee's Army in Northern Virginia. When the seminary reopened in 1865, its small endowment was gone, the students few, and the prospect one of struggle and sacrifice. During the darkest days, so I said it was started in Charlotte, it looks like it was started in Greenville. Broadus revealed his spirit when he said to the other professors, because they thought the seminary couldn't make it. Seven students, should we shut it down? And by that time, Broadus was so dedicated to making it work that he says... Perhaps the seminary may die, but let us resolve to die first. I wonder what Broadus would think if he knew what has become of Southern Baptist denomination in our day. It's a mess. It's a mess. The seminary is still pretty solid. Albert Moeller is the president, but Southern Baptist denomination really is a mess. In fact, their present president was trying as recently as a couple of weeks ago to say that we can respect people's gender pronouns based on something in Acts 17. And I think, how do these things happen? These good men, these God-fearing men, so gifted. And he says that, may we die before the seminary dies, says John Broadus. He would never be able to recognize what has become of the Southern Baptist denomination in our day. Well, in 1870, he published his treatise on the preparation and delivery of sermons, a book that still remains a classic in its field. The seminary was moved to Louisville in 1877, so they needed to have a more central location, and it saved the seminary from dissolving, from not being able to continue. So it is in its present day in Louisville. And I wish that I would have known that because I was in Louisville uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, 
James Boyce and John Broadus are in the seminary grounds uh, graveyard, and I would love to have been able to go up and look at his tombstone. I, I just didn't know. So the last years of his life were years of increasing fame and recognition. In 1889, he gave the Lyman Beecher Lectures on Preaching at Yale University. No Baptist had ever given lectures on preaching at Yale University. It was a congregational university. He was the only Southern Baptist ever to be accorded this honor, and he became the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary's second president after Boyce. His commentary on Matthew... He wrote lectures on the history of preaching, harmony of the Gospels, and other books were to add to his stature as a scholar. W.E. Hatcher wrote of me of Broadus in the Religious Herald, a very discriminating estimate of Dr. Broadus from which we quote, He had a touch all his own, did a work not to be duplicated, and will fill a niche in history which till now has been empty. No man so far as I ever knew ever taught men just exactly as he did. Dr. Broadus was good. It is told that he was sometimes sharp and almost cruel at times in his classroom. Alas, for the dear man, Jesus could hardly suffer his theological class for their three years course and sometimes wished the school was out. I don't know what he means by that. Wonderful that the overtaxed Broadus was so patient. If he did ever utter the cutting word, it cut him far more deeply than it cut the victim himself. In other words, it grieved him. It was painful for him to bring some kind of reproof to those who were his students. He had a high, imperious nature, and outside of his classroom, as well as in it. He had sore provocations. Most of us were too free in judging and censoring him. His patience was positively provoking to those who struck him. It was impossible to scourge him into folly. His good sense never forsook him, and he knew how to wait for time's vindication. In other words, he wouldn't defend himself. He would wait for God to defend him. Intellectually, he was a pattern of cleanness, and it would be impossible for those who were capable of appreciating him to conceive of his mind, giving itself to ignoble thought or purpose. Error, error was absolutely afraid of him. As for his religion... That was the most real, substantial part of him. It had him fully in hand. Christ never had a completer slave. His eye was to his master, and he was on double duty all his days. The most sacred and awful feature of his character was his yearning after goodness. By far the most thrilling and memorable utterance that I ever heard fall from his lips was his description of the soul's struggle after goodness. That was his struggle, and he got it while he lived and showed it in the manner of his living. Broadus has struggled with ill health since his college days. By extreme care, he had continued his work in spite of toil and trial. However, years of Privation and struggle had taken their toll, and he died on March 16th, 1895. Almost at the zenith of his fame, his life had been a life of quiet but intense dedication to a great task. Well, in closing, I'm comparing two people in my mind's eye who lived at the same time. That is, Broadus was born in 1827, Spurgeon in 1834. Spurgeon passed away in 1892, Broadus passed away just three years later in 1895, and Spurgeon said that Broadus was one of the great living preachers. Well, an interesting statistic is, you know how popular Spurgeon's sermons were that when they were published and they were duplicated in America, they 
had such widespread approval. The only other Baptist pastor in that day where they would publish his sermons like that was John Broadus. But again, another dear saint of the last century that I think the time has gotten, and that's John A. Broadus. Well, thank you for turning in to the Men of God podcast, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky.